Thanks for tuning in to the Calvary Now podcast. At Calvary, our mission is to set people's hope in God and engage in the mission of God. Today, we're back in our study in the book of Mark, where we see how Jesus' teachings turned the perception of the kingdom of God upside down. Well, good morning. It is a cold Sunday morning. And I am, I don't know about you, but man, if it's going to be cold, then I want it to snow like 10 inches, right? I'm tired of this like 15 degree weather, 60 degree weather when it's raining and then it's just cold again. Like, man, let's let it be cold. Let us let it snow for, get a foot of snow and get our kids out of school and have a great time. And all the teachers said amen to that. Hey, listen, hopefully you have gotten word by now that as of midweek, we have reached our global missions offering goal of $1 million. Hey, can we thank God for that? Listen, I can't begin to express to you how thankful I am for your generosity, your faithful giving that goes to support our partnerships all over the world because we know and we believe, and I will say this as long as I serve as pastor here, that healthy churches plant churches. They multiply, they plant churches, and we get to be a part of seeing churches planted in our city, in our country, and around the world through your generosity to the Global Missions offering. And so I wanna thank you. Now, I also know some of you still might like to give to that, and you've not had a chance, and you're kind of thinking to yourself, whew, I'm off the hook. Well, I'm gonna let that be between you and God, all right? But let me say to you, Every dollar you give over and above our $1 million goal is going to go directly to one of our church plants, one of our specific partners, one of our specific plants that we have been partnering with. We've said as a part of our vision that we wanna help partner to plant 50 North American and international churches by the year 2030. Everything over and above will go to one of those partners. And so I wanna encourage you to give to that today if you haven't had an opportunity to do it. Like all of our generosity, you can go to calvarynow.com forward slash giving and find more information there. You also know that today across the country, uh, churches will celebrate the sanctity of human life. Uh, and earlier this week, you also know that our nation slowed down to remember and to reflect upon the life and contributions of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, both the sanctity of human life and Dr. King's uh, day of remembrance and on celebrating his life serve as a tremendous reminder of God's great love for those he's created and whom bear his image. They also remind us of the brokenness of our world and that it's in desperate need of renewal. And as a church, we're called to be on mission to reconcile all things to himself, working from God. Then may we as a church be found faithful uh, in that endeavor. So I wanna remind you that today at 1230, uh, there are three different walks taking place in our city with our uh, pregnancy support centers that we partner with, all of which are taking place today at 1230. People from all over our community are gathering um, to support the rights of the unborn. And we believe that we ought to work to eradicate abortion from our society because of the value we believe God has placed on every human life. And so we would encourage you to get involved with one of our partners. This is a very simple way uh, for you to do that. It's one cause, it's three locations. You can go to calvarynow.com slash events and find more information about where those walks will be taking place and gathering today. So we wanna encourage you to be a part 
part of that. Well, listen, I wanna invite you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. If you're our guest this morning, let me say welcome to you. We're thrilled that you're here. Let me share with you that our church has been studying through Mark's gospel and Mark's been helping us see something very clearly. He's been helping us see that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, he's the promised one, he is the king. And as king, he has all authority over all things. We've seen he has authority over the spiritual, the physical. He has the ability to forgive sins. He's been healing people, raising people from the dead. And he has been teaching with extraordinary authority in such a way that the people were recognizing that something was unique about the way he was teaching. And as he teaches, he's challenging the way things were and he's turning things in the minds of the people upside down, helping them see and understand that the wisdom and ways of his kingdom look much different than the wisdom and ways of this world. And that's why we say all the time, unashamedly, that an encounter with Jesus changes everything. It changes the way that you see everything. Coming under the Lordship of Christ and submitting to his rule and reign in our lives changes the way that we view everything because now we see it from what our king says it should be and the way we should. And so last week, as we, in our study, we talked about Jesus's teaching on marriage and divorce found here at the beginning of chapter 10 where Jesus responds to the questions from the religious leaders who wanna know, well, is it lawful to divorce your wife? And so Jesus does what's really important when wrestling with any question of sexual ethics is he takes them and basically says, listen, I understand the question. I understand why you're asking the question, but I think it's the wrong question. So instead of answering it directly, he says, it wasn't always this way. Let me take you back to the very beginning where we see God's design for marriage. So he takes their question and he takes them back to Genesis chapter two. Where there in the garden, we see God establishing marriage and God saying it's for this reason that a man shall leave his father and mother. It should be the priority relationship now is the marriage relationship. He should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. It's intended to be entered into with a sense of reverence and sobriety with an understanding that it is to be permanent. But we also saw from the text and from the reading of God's word that he wants them to see that God's design for marriage and his desire, but there are certain circumstances because of the human fallenness and for preventing more harm, there seem to be limited grounds, limited circumstances for a divorce. And we talked about how divorce should always be a last resort and never a first response. And that we should be always desirous if the Lord would will for reconcil- reconciliation. So this morning, as I was praying through, I had every intent of just moving on to the next passage here in Mark chapter 10. As we just began praying and talking to our staff about it this week, it was like, man, it was a heavy, it was a heavy message last week. I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. It was heavy. And, but one of the things we didn't do, and we, because we just didn't have time, you know, we talked about how you know, God's desire is reconciliation, that an ounce of prevention is, is worth a pound of cure. It's like, well, how do we? The question just kept coming to my mind, should we take some time to talk about, well, how do we embrace then God's ideal for marriage? How do we take this ideal that's been given to us here in Genesis chapter two and begin to live this out in practical lives? How do we work to have the marriage as God's designed? And so I wanna pause from our study of Mark 10 
And I want us to lean into that question a little bit this morning. And so I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, where we see, I believe, one of the clearest teachings on marriage given to us by Paul. And before we dive into our teaching on marriage this morning, I want to remind us that while marriage is good and wonderful and certainly teaches us aspects of God's love, we have, a tenden- we have a tendency to make marriage, and in particular in our culture, sexual intimacy, out to be the ultimate good, that that's the ultimate relationship, and every other relationship, including singleness, is seen as second best. And I want to categorically stand here and say that that is not true, and that is not what the Scriptures teach. Marriage is just but one of several ways we begin to understand and uncover aspects of God's love for us. As I heard it described by one, that there are many spokes in the wheel of human love, each playing a unique role in helping us understand aspects of God's love for us, but no one spoke is more important than the other. So we must be careful not to elevate marriage and sexual intimacy to the ultimate good and see other ways, like through good, godly, biblical friendship, other ways of experiencing love as somehow second best. So I wanna be careful with that in our understanding, even as we talk about marriage. But I also wanna be very clear that the scripture is clear on how we lean into our marriages to strengthen them in order that they might fulfill what God has designed, that they might be for his glory ultimately, but also for our good. And so leaving Mark, I want us to look here at Ephesians chapter five, and I want us to focus in most specifically in verses 18 to 33 this morning. So I'm gonna read the passage of scripture for us. I'll have it up on the screens for those of you who don't um, have your Bible with you today. But the scripture says, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. And here we see Paul again appealing back to creation. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask now in these sacred moments that we have together as your people to gather around your word, God, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate it to us. Your word is truth. It is the standard of truth. 
Father, I pray that you would give us open hearts and open minds to receive the teaching of the word of God, that we might respond in faith, that we might respond with courage. And God, whatever it is you're leading us to do and to change, to work on, Father, I pray that you would help us see that clearly and give us the strength and power through your spirit to bring that to pass. Father, I'd ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my own heart in this very moment, my own motives in this moment, God, would be pleasing to you. God, that you would work here in our midst and at our campuses this morning through Pastor Ryan and Pastor Samuel and through our Kareni and Nepalese congregations as they gather. And Father, I pray for the churches in our community. Lord, I pray that we would see a movement here, God, that might bring glory to you and especially wanna pray for Tanner Hogue in Virginia Beach this morning who's launching their first public services today. Thank you for the joy we have of being able to partner with them to plant uh, the Port City Church there. God, may you do an incredible work through them and we'll give you the glory. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, you know that whenever you come to a passage of scripture and you jump right into the middle of it, it's difficult. And it's, it's important for us to stop and understand and make sure we have the right context for which Paul is writing. And I wanna remind you that in Ephesians chapters one to three, Paul has done an extraordinary job of just laying the foundation of the gospel. You see over and over again in chapter one, him talking about God's work in salvation. We see in chapter two, those beautiful verses in the first 10 that talk about us being you know, children of wrath and sons of disobedience. We're following our own desires, but God being rich in mercy draws us to himself and gives us faith. And we respond to that in the gospel of Christ. We see all these things in chapters one and two and three and beautiful pictures on reconciliation and all of that. And you get to chapter four and Paul begins to shift gears a little bit. He's like, I want to, I'm gonna take this foundation that I've laid here at the first part of this letter. And now I'm gonna to begin to show you all the implications of these gospel truths and principles lived out in life, lived out in the church. And now we see specifically lived out in our marriages. And so he provides for us some very practical guidance of how we can fulfill God's vision for marriage in a broken and sin-filled world. And so I want us to see from the passage this morning, I want us to see four challenges. I think we derive from what Paul teaches that will put us on a course towards the marriages God's described there in Genesis chapter two. So if you're a note taker or you have our app this morning, you can pull it up there. The first challenge is this, and this is gonna be one of those ones you're like, okay, well, that just is about as basic as it becomes, but it's so important. It all starts with following Jesus. It all starts with following Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 18. And he says, and do not get drunk with wine for that leads to debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord and giving thanks. You notice what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, church, don't get drunk with wine. But that's gonna to lead to all sorts of foolishness. It's gonna to lead to all sorts of debauchery. It's gonna lead to all sorts of destruction. And he's saying to them, listen, don't let wine control you. Rather, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I know this. When you study the Greek and you look at that word, be filled, it is a present active imperative verb. So it's a command that carries with it the idea of a continual action. So it's as if Paul is looking at us and he's saying, listen, you need to be being filled with the Spirit. 
constantly be filled over and over again, moment by moment, day by day, constantly looking to deny ourselves, as Jesus would say earlier in Mark, take up our crosses and follow him. Dying to self, living toward the spirit, constantly being filled with him. And I wanna say to us unashamedly that this is the key for health in any relationship. And I want us to see why it's so important specifically for our marriages. Because church family, it is only when we are so satisfied with Christ, so filled with him to overflowing, that we'll not look to other relationships to satisfy us in the ways that they were never intended to do. In other words, if you take marriage, for example, if we look to our spouses to fill us, to satisfy us, to give our lives purpose and meaning, to think, man, if I could just have a spouse, life would be worth living. If they could just do this for me, man, my life would be worth it. If we look to our spouses for that, I can promise you one thing will happen and you see it all the time. You will inevitably crush your spouse under the weight of expectations that you have for them because they can't live up to that. If your spouse is ultimate for you, you will crush them. And so not only do we gain this intimacy with Christ by being filled with the spirit, we begin to now rightly see and rightly order the relationships and we don't place expectation on our relationships that God never intended those relationships to carry. And when we do, when we crush our spouse under the expectations we have for them, then we can begin to see pretty clearly why you often see one spouse leaving another spouse for some unmet expectation that they have seen it over and over again in the counseling room. Well, you know, well, Susie just wasn't really meeting this need that I have. And so I met, you know, Bonnie and, you know, Bonnie really understands me. She really gets me and she understands how big of a need this is in my life. And and now my heart, now my affections are just kind of given to her. There's some unrealistic expectation that's been placed looking to the spouse to satisfy in a way that they're never intended to. C.S. Lewis talked about it in his work, The Weight of Glory, reminding us that only one thing can bear the weight of glory and not be crushed, and that's Jesus. We're created by him and for him, and so it's when we are so satisfied with him that we can have the right and reasonable expectations for what marriage is and how marriage ultimately can work. And so let me say it this clearly and practically, the greatest gift you can give your spouse is to do everything necessary in your own life to cultivate a heart that treasures Jesus more than anything. As a follower of Christ, to die to self, to be filled with the spirit and to cultivate in my own heart a deep and intimate relationship with God, to spend time in his word where I'm learning more about who he is and about who I am. I was reminded this week in my study that it was one of the great 16th century reformers who said that nearly the whole of sacred scripture of doctrine consists of these two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. The more time we spend in the word, the more we see God for who he is, the more rightly we begin to see us for who we are. And when that happens, true transformation in our lives takes place and there's this growing knowledge of God and there's this growing understanding of ourselves that rightly orders things and rightly sees marriage for what it's supposed to be. 
It's to leverage those means of grace of Bible reading and prayer and being in community. It's one of the reasons why we talk about home groups and small groups so much here is because we want people studying the Bible in community together where they're sharpening one another and encouraging one another and spurring one another on to hope in Christ and to live out the fullness of all God's design in our relationships. And so the first challenge is to love Jesus more than anything. It's to be filled with his spirit. And now, because you're so satisfied with Christ, you can begin to embrace the next challenge that I think you see here clearly in verse 21, where we are to prioritize our spouse and not ourselves. Now, I wanna be clear. I recognize Paul's talking to the church. And so there's a very real sense that he's saying, listen, I ought to be putting your needs above my own. I ought to look at you, Jay, and say, Jay, your needs are important, more important than mine. I'm gonna put your needs above my own. Nathan, I'm gonna do that for you. And we're constantly, as a body of believers, doing that for one another. That's how the church thrives and flourishes, when we put the needs of others above our own. If it's true in the church, it should also be true, certainly, in my marriage. That directive seems pretty clear. Paul would say it this way in other places in Philippians, like in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So over and over again, we're called to come alongside one another, put the needs and put the interests of others above our own, to spur one another on in the faith, pointing each other to the help and the hope that God provides. Now, if we stop right there, you're like, oh, yeah, that's true, I get that. Now, here's the thing, let's be honest. Putting the needs of our spouse or anyone above our own, that's not normal and that's not natural. Every single one of us, Every single one of us is hardwired to do one thing, and that's to look out for ourselves. That's the way our heart is wired. It's me first. It's let me be on the throne. It's let me be in control and let me work to figure out how I can get my own needs met. And not only that, the needs and interests of others often run completely contradictory to our own. And all the married people said, amen. You recognize that in your spouse. You see that in the relationship. But think about how powerful this is. Think about how our marriages are impacted. When a husband and wife are so satisfied with Christ that they can joyfully consider the other person more important than themselves, making sacrifices for them that reveal just how deeply they are hoping in Christ thinking about, man, if I could love and put Julie's interests above my own in such a way that she would look at that and, and the only conclusion she could draw is like, that is so not natural for Will. That has to be the spirit working in him. That has to be God working in him because that's not his interest. That's not his desire. And so let's get really practical here for just a second. Some of you might be asking, well, I'm not real sure what the needs and the interests of my spouse are. And I feel like I'm just kind of grasping in the dark, hoping to hit something. I may have used this before. Like, I'm not a hunter. A part of me wants to be one. Like, I know how to shoot a gun, but I've never been like hunting, hunting, right? But I know the difference between a rifle and a shotgun. I know when you put a shotgun shell into a shotgun and you pull that trigger, it shoots a spray. That, that shell sprays and it disperses and all the pellets go everywhere. And I know when you shoot a rifle, man, it's one projectile and it's going towards a target. When it comes to meeting the needs and interests and desires of my spouse, I wanna shoot a rifle and not a shotgun. I don't wanna just hope I'm hitting something out there. 
I wanna know what it is, which means that we have to work hard to cultivate an environment where we can talk to one another and those needs can be expressed in a non-threatening and demanding way. And you're like, all right, big fellow, well, how do you do that? I think one of the simplest things that Julie and I have tried to do in our marriage that I think has paid huge dividends for us is to go on a date, and we should all be dating all the time. So this last week without your cell phones, go out on a date, sit across from each other, and one of you ask this one question, game-changing question. How am I doing as your spouse? How am I doing? For me to create an environment where I say to Julie, all right, I'm inviting it all. You tell me, how am I doing? Because I think I might be doing fine, but in reality, I might be just missing it. How am I doing in this relationship? And giving her the freedom to say to me, well, Will, man, you're really crushing it here, but I really like it when you do this. This really is helpful here for me. It's helpful for our family. It's most meaningful. And I'm gonna give you a, just one example of something Julie told me that was just, man, it was like a light bulb moment for me. If you know me, like I am actually an introvert. So I am an introvert or extroverted introvert. Like I like being with people, but I don't necessarily recharge with people. I kind of recharge being alone, kind of in quiet. And so when I come home, there are times when I'm kind of like, and I am like peopled out, right? And it's just, I've given and given and it's just hard. So I've come home and my default is when I, to come home is just to disconnect, to disconnect from the family, disconnect from Julie at times. And I can remember sitting there asking her that question, honey, how am I doing? She's like, you're doing fine, but I really don't like it when you disconnect in this way. When you come home and the first thing you do is turn on Sports Center, that's really hard. What I really like is if you will come home and you'll give me your first 15 to 30 minutes of when you get home, and you tell me about your day. You tell me about what you did. You tell me about what you're working on. Because you know what that does? It helps me feel like I'm a part of what you're doing. I'm a part of the ministry. I'm a part of your work. And I feel like we're doing it and in it together. And I'm like, so you're telling me if I give you 30 minutes, that's a game changer? She's like, yeah. And I'm like, I'm all in. I can do that. Come in. Let me help do some cooking. I'm terrible at it, but I can do some certain stuff. And just listening and finding those things to figure out, okay, now I'm shooting a rifle. I know, first 15 to 30 minutes at home is really, really helpful to my wife. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, putting the needs of each other above your own. So start with following Jesus, being filled with the Spirit, and then by being filled with the Spirit, now you can prioritize your spouse and not yourself. And now Paul's gonna get really practical and speak to the roles of husbands and wives and the roles they play in marriage, which is the third challenge, which is to fully embrace God's design for husbands and wives within marriage, to fully embrace it. Now, I know it likely goes without saying, but it needs to be said. Fully embracing God's design for husbands and wives within marriage runs completely against the grain of culture and will likely seem counterintuitive to us. In a culture where our happiness is the highest possible good and our ultimate priority, in a world of expressive individualism, God's design on the surface might seem archaic, it might seem oppressive, and in most instances, it might in some ways even just seem utterly unsatisfying. 
But the design is clear. Wives, trust and follow your husbands like the church trusts and follows Jesus. And husbands, love and sacrifice for your wives like Jesus loves and sacrifices for the church. Wives, if I could, let me speak to you for just a moment. I'm speaking to all of us, but in particular to you. The scripture is very clear here in verses 22 to 24, which we've read. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. So in the same way that the church submits itself to Christ, so also wives submit yourselves to your husbands. The church is submitting itself to Christ in everything, he himself being the head of the church. Now, I wanna be clear here. I think this passage is often misinterpreted and misunderstood. Many will wanna take this verse as a proof text to declare that God somehow values men more than he values women. But when we read the whole counsel of God's word, we know with just crystal clarity that that can't be true when we read the word of God, especially when we go back to creation. The Bible teaches that God created them, male and female, both made in the image of God and both given the creation mandate to have dominion over the earth. So it means, as one author wrote, men and women together in full participation must carry out God's mandate to build civilization and build culture. So when we go back to the beginning, we understand that when you look at male and female, that there is equality in personhood and importance. There's equality in personhood and importance and yet there is distinctiveness in the roles that are played. Equality of importance in personhood and importance and distinctiveness in roles. Paul would affirm that in Genesis 3. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So I wanna be clear that wives submit to your husbands is not a statement of worth or value, but at minimum, it is a statement about the order and design that God has within the home and within the family, and in particular in the marriage. And when we look at God and we read the whole counsel of God's word, we understand that there is order in everything God does because he's not a God of disorder. We see that there's order in creation. We know that, man, when you just look at the science around how the earth was created, the distance it is from the sun, the way it perfectly rotates on axis, all of these things perfectly create the environment where life can exist and continue to exist. God has designed it in this way. There's order in our bodies. And we see that and we know that that when one small thing is off, we see the chaos that ensues. We see what happens when there are physical and mental disabilities, something is off or a cancer grows in our bodies. We know that they're designed with order, but because of the brokenness and fallenness of our world, things get out of order and there's consequences to that. We see there is order in the church 
God establishing pastors and leaders to know and lead and feed and protect the church. We see deacons serving the body. The word of God teaches us that we don't get to actually just come and worship God in any way we choose. The Bible gives us that way. Here's how you will to come and worship me. Here's how churches are to be established. And here's what you are to be and do on mission for him. There's order in that. There's order in the governing authorities that God establishes that are intended intended to punish harm and keep evil at bay. And so we submit to that, right? And so there's order in the marriage there too. And the exhortation is for wives to submit themselves to their husbands, to trust and respect the role that God has given the husband in the marriage. I know we're like, okay, but what does that practically look like in everyday life? Yeah, I'm gonna try to paint a picture for you. If two people, if a husband and wife are taking that first challenge seriously of being filled with the Spirit, and if they're considering the other person more important than themselves, I think, I think that in most instances and in most decisions, even the most important ones, you're gonna be in lockstep with one another. You're gonna be listening to one another and caring for one another and hearing one another and encouraging one another. And there's gonna be this mutual blessing that's gonna come in that. But inevitably, there will be times I think probably pretty small, but inevitably there'll be times when you aren't. And so in those big life decisions, when you just aren't on the same page, here's what I think it means. I think it means that the husband is to get the final vote. With all the responsibility and accountability that comes along with that. In their book, The Meaning of Marriage, Kathy Keller explained it this way. It means that in matters of disagreement, I yield to Tim the deciding vote. I get a vote, he gets a vote, and he gets the deciding vote. And she tells the story about how they were trying to make the decision to move to New York and plant Redeemer City Church there. And in her heart, she just didn't wanna go, and Tim felt really strongly that they should go. And so he just says to her, well, I guess we won't go. And she looked at him and said, oh, no, you don't. She said, you don't do that. You're not putting this on me. You have to make that decision and you have to bear that responsibility. You have to make that decision and you have to bear that responsibility. And listen, if I could be clear here, I'm not talking about in matters of preference. Husbands, I would say, man, in matters of preference, you ought to be deferring to your wife in everything. As you, as you just love her. I mean, I just wanna serve you in that way. I wanna love you in that way. But in those rare instances where you've prayed together and you've sought the counsel of God together and you've listened to one another and you've sought the wisdom of others from one another and you still just can't find agreement on a life decision, I would say to wives, trust him. Trust him and place yourself under his authority and let him have, in this, in this vernacular, the deciding vote. So wives, trust and follow your husbands like the church trusts and follows Jesus, submitting to him. But look at what the scripture says to husbands. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. Husbands, hear that your example is to look to Christ and to remember, look at what Christ does with his authority. He has all authority over all things. And what does he do with that authority? He takes that authority and he uses it in such a way he uses his authority and the power that he has to serve others, expressing a love so deep that it takes him to the cross, right? 
And that's how husbands are to love their wives. It's to look at the cross and see him there, seeing the length to which he's gone to redeem a people for himself, to see him loving us unconditionally without any expectation of anything in return, to see him loving us sacrificially as he bears the weight of our sin, the emotional pain that he went through, the sacrifice that he went through, the physical pain, the cosmic pain as God the Father pours the wrath and judgment upon him. You wanna know what it looks like for us to love our wives well is to look to Christ and to love them in the same way. You say, well, Will, how do I do that? What does that look like on the day to day? Well, I think Paul helps us when he says here in verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it. So to nourish it means to provide for. It means to take responsibility for the provision of your home. It's to own that. It's to lead the way spiritually. It's to spur your wife. It's to spur your family on to hope in Christ. It's to nourish her and nourish the family in the same way that you would yourself. And it's to cherish her. In the original language, it means to adore her. You're pursuing her in a way that she knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that she is the most important relationship in your life apart from Christ. My parents were married on June the 3rd, 1967. And I have watched, I'm 52 years old. I have watched my father nourish and cherish my mother all the days of my life. And I have been married for almost 57 years now. And I look and I watch him still today cherish her, write her notes, pursue her, take her out, adore her, And it's bred in her this deep-seated confidence that I know my husband has only eyes for me. And I know that my husband would never make decisions that doesn't have my best interests at heart. You want to know how to love your wife like that? You nourish her, you cherish her, and you look to Christ as your example of that. And here's what I know to be true. I've never met a wife. I've never met a wife in all my years in ministry. I've never met a wife who sat across from me, who is falling more in love with Jesus, who has got a deep walk with him, who would not joyfully and willingly trust her husband when she has seen a pattern of him nourishing and cherishing her over a long period of time. Because she'll have the confidence in that moment, even if she doesn't agree with the ultimate decision, she'll have the confidence of knowing he's making that decision with me in mind, even if I don't agree with it, right? And so the challenge is for us to embrace these roles of wives, trusting and following your husbands like the church trusts and follows Jesus and husbands loving your wives like Christ loves the church which leads to the last challenge that I want to give to you today. And that is not actually found in Ephesians 5. It's found in Ephesians 4. And it's to become a skillful spouse. It's to become a skillful spouse. For our marriages to thrive and be healthy, there are two areas in particular that I think we need to develop strong skills in, and that is in communication and conflict resolution. If you have those two skills, you can work through just about anything or most things. So I was talking to our staff and I went and talked to Nathan a little bit. And he was like, man, I think I've got some resources that would be a little helpful. And so he shared with me something that really resonated with me and I wanna share it with you. These are just the four rules of communication 
that are found here in verses 25 to 32 of chapter 4. So much, you know, so much of conflict resolution is just good communication. And so I just want to focus in on these four rules of communication that I hope in a way will be just tools that you can put in your tool belt that will help you in your marriage. The first rule is this, be honest. It's just be honest. Verse 25, therefore, having a put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Earlier in Ephesians 4, we see that we are to speak the truth in love. Loving one another enough to speak the truth in love, desiring the best of one another. If you want to have a strong, you've got to be honest with one another. It was John Boger who said, it is said that speaking the truth without love is like doing surgery without anesthetic. We want to speak the truth in love. We want to be honest with one another in our communications. Rule number two, keep current. Keep current. You see it in verse 26 and verse 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You know, anger towards sin is in and of itself not simple. That's why he would say, be angry and do not sin, which implies there's an anger that is not sinful. The real challenge, though, is when we don't rightly deal with that anger and rightly approach it, we don't solve problems in a timely way, the sun goes down and we give a foothold to bitterness and resentment that creeps in and will rot us from the inside out. So work to keep current, be honest and truthful in a loving way, and be current. Don't let those things just simmer and sweep them under the rug. I can tell you the number of times just sitting and hearing people just not dealing with conflict, and that's what they do. They just sweep it under the rug, and eventually, man, that big dust monster comes out. It just doesn't stay there. And then things get to be explosive because you've not kept current in your conflict resolution or in your communication. Number three, attack the problem and not the person. Attack the problem and not the person. You see that in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth that attacks a person. Don't use words like, well, you're stupid. Or, you're just dumb or you're lazy. Or to speak in extremes of like, you always or you never do this. Wholesome words communicate your love and your commitment to them, to see health, to see them thriving. Wholesome words will be solution-oriented words and not destructive ones. Let no unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for building up and the edification of the other person. And then the fourth rule is act, don't react. Act, don't react. Let all bitterness, he says in verse 31, and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Don't react with bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. Rather be proactive and act with kindheartedness. Kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness towards one another in the same way that you have been treated by Christ. Become a skillful partner. Work in these areas. I don't care if you've been married for 60 years or for two months. 
These things can be practical and helpful for you in your relationship. To be honest, to be current, to attack the problem and not the person, to act but not react. If you want a marriage that's thriving, keep working on the right skills to ensure that it will. And so I wanna close this morning by just causing us and challenging us to, to think and to reflect for just a moment. And to ask ourselves two questions as we think about God's design, as we think about what he's calling us to in these practical ways that we can have the ideal marriage. The first question I want to ask us all is, do you actually desire it? I mean, do you really deep down desire it? Because right behaviors are going to be generated and kept long term when they're born out of right motives. You have to start with the desires of your heart. If God's ideal isn't your greatest desire, you won't ever live out something you first don't desire. So if you're being honest with yourself, and you're like, man, I just don't think I desire this, this vision of, of what it looks like and all that's entailed in it, then confess that to God and ask him to give you new desires that align with his. And the second question I wanna ask as we seek to embrace God's design here is, well, where do you need help right now? Which of these four challenges do you need help with most right now? Is it following Jesus and just taking steps to grow practically? Is it in prioritizing your spouse over yourself? Is it in trusting God's design for the wife or the husband? Is it in the right skills? Just to be honest with yourself, Lord, which one of these do I need the most help with right now? And let me take a step towards that this week. And listen, if you don't know, can I encourage you with something? If you don't know, Ask your spouse. She'll tell you. He'll tell you, right? Gladly, right? I think it's here. And if you, let me say this. If your spouse asks you that question, man, you ought to thank them for asking that question and say to them, I'm here to walk with you and help you all along the way because I love you. And I want, to, I want to see you thriving and flourishing. You know, I'll... I've shared this with you before, but the Lord just brought it to my mind. One of my favorite quotes, and I'm going to mess it up because I, I didn't write it down. But it says, when two people are all dressed in their wedding finery, stand before the minister on their wedding day, they realize that they're not just playing dress up. And that one day, they're going to be standing not before the minister, but they're going to be standing before the Lord. And they long to hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servants. You've loved one another. You've encouraged one another. You've rebuked one another. You've prayed for one another. You've spurred one another on to me. And now look at you. You're radiant. That's what we long to hear when we stand with our loved one in all of eternity. Let that be of us. And let us pursue it radically with great intentionality that Christ might be glorified. Amen. Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Now podcast. We desire that Calvary would be a place of belonging and hope where no one wants alone. If you're not already, we would love for you to join us in person at either of our campuses on Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. For more information, visit us at calvarynow.com.